Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so that you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Super excited to welcome a new Charlottean, Matt Beck. Uh, Mac is the co-founder and CEO of Hoppy Planet. Um, and as you'll learn in our podcast today, has a unique product recently funded by the Charlotte Angel Fund 2 and 3. Um, and still raising a little bit out, um, of outside capital in that round as well. But Matt's on a unique uh, adventure here where they are introducing sustainable protein to the masses here in what hopefully will eventually become uh, Western culture. Um, as we'll learn throughout the podcast today, it's a much more acceptable form of protein in other areas of the world, but hasn't been adopted as much here in the in the Western cultures. It is a much more sustainable protein and we'll learn a lot about it and Matt's history uh, where he came up with the idea how uh, how his past experience has allowed him to I think have a really good shot at making this thing a, a very successful company so great podcast where we learn about sustainable proteins and where they might come from and as you'll quickly pick up on the name of the the the, the company as a result thereof. So really enjoy this podcast. Go out of your way to reach out to Matt on LinkedIn um, or through his company, social media platforms. Welcome to Charlotte. Uh, take him out to lunch. Take him um, out for drinks or something like that. Make him feel um, as a welcome entrepreneur should be here in the Charlotte region. Enjoy today's podcast. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show, man. We're excited to get started and, and learn a little bit more about Hoppy Planet today. Yeah, man. Awesome to be here. Thanks so much. So as you know, as we gave you a little forewarning, we all need our, our 60 to 90 second commercial of Matt and the business. So, um, let's, let's get this thing rocking and rolling with a little bit of a, um, a little bit of an introduction to you. Yeah. So, uh, my name is Matt Beck. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Hoppy Planet Foods, and we make uh, delicious, more nutritious and sustainable versions of everyday snacks. Uh, we do that using something called a cheddar protein, which if you're not familiar, a cheddar protein is a cricket-based protein. So you use the same way as you use a whey or collagen or pea proteins, but with a better nutritional profile and a far smaller environmental footprint. So uh, we like to say we make the foods you love, love you back. Uh, but in reality, what that means is we make things like uh, soft-baked snack, like cookies and mini muffins, and we do breakfast bars and protein bars, and they'll have you know, two to three times the protein, less added sugar, you know, all natural non-GMO and natural prebiotics and, and all that good stuff and uh, far, far smaller environmental footprint than, than what's typically uh, on stores today. And uh, so we sell our stuff uh, at retail stores, about a couple hundred retail stores across the country, as well as online. And, um, you know, we've been in business for, oh my gosh, uh, two and a half years at this point now. So uh, just keep rocking and rolling. That's awesome. Um, so let's dive in a little bit. Where are you from? Yeah. So originally born and raised in New York, um, grew up there most of my life. Uh, once I graduated college, I started bouncing around for work quite a lot. So lived in upstate New York, middle New York, Connecticut, uh, moved out to Chicago. I ended up staying in Chicago for about eight years, which is where uh, I went back to grad school. It's where I met my now wife and, uh, now here in Charlotte, uh, for almost two years. So 
what brought you to Charlotte? Why Charlotte? From because you came from uh, from Chicago straight to Charlotte, right? Yeah, man. So, um, you know, we were living downtown in the city. We were kind of tired of of living in an apartment lifestyle there. And, um, you know, gosh, I, you always joke about the cold when you're in Chicago. And I think we went on vacation in like a, in, in like December one year and, and it was like 70 degrees where we were. And then we came back home and it was like four, you know, like literally four degrees. And we're just like, you know, there are like, we don't have to live like this. Like there's other places you could go. And so that kind of started us down the train. And so we took, you know, um, 20, 20 as an opportunity to ironically uh go around and actually kind of see some other places and experience them a little bit or some friends where we knew uh, in places where we knew and um we came to charlotte as one of those trips actually didn't know anybody but within like 30 minutes of being here we just we just kind of knew it was right it's 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 cleaner it's greener it's more open everybody's super friendly it's more affordable um all the reasons that uh, that make uh, charlotte great uh, just don't tell anybody else so that people stop moving here <laughs> I think the secret's out. I, th- I don't think we're going to have any luck doing that, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so what's your, so, um, sustainable protein, healthy snacks, right? That's, that's hoppy planet. Um, background's got to be in food. Um, right. That's, you've, you've got to be a, a protein per, what's your background, right? How did you get yeah. into hoppy planet? Yeah. So it's, it's really kind of a blend of personal and and professional passion is is what took us here. So, you know, professionally, I spent the first six and a half years of my career working at Frito-Lay and PepsiCo. So right, right out of school, started like four days after graduation or something like that. Um, You know, uh, flinging, flinging Doritos and Lay's, you know, in upstate New York and um, led their uh, different portions of their sales and strategy throughout across the the Northeast and then ran a good portion of uh, the Midwest as well when I was out in Chicago. Um, from there, I ended up getting recruited to go work at Google, where I led part of their food and beverage practice. So I would work with major food manufacturers like Kellogg's and Mondelez and, and Dr. Pepper and help them with their data and, and marketing and strategy. So all that was kind of the food background side, uh, you know, for probably you know, 12 years or so, 10, 12 years. And, uh, you know, personally, I was, I was an athlete all my life. I, I wrestled up into college. I've always been, you know, focused on health and nutrition and, and, um, and actually coming out of that is when I decided I needed to make sure I had, you know, a healthy eating lifestyle. Um, uh, and, um, that's kind of what took me there along with a, a huge personal passion for sustainability and kind of put all those together and you get hoppy planet. Man, you didn't tell me you're a wrestler. Yeah, you know, I started in in middle school, did it throughout uh, high school. I actually attribute, you know, a good part of my personality probably to that. Uh, did it up into college, but um, you know, I, I, you know, D one sports can take a lot of the fun out of college, depending on what you're doing. And I, uh, I ended up getting hurt. You know, I tore my shoulder for the second time, and um, was tired of kind of cutting away and said, you know what, I think I'm gonna have the fun part of college now, and so went off and did that. Um, you know. I've got a friend of mine that um, wrestled in college and um, talks about all the time how wrestling is probably one of the best sports to build character um, and whatnot. Just knowing that you're down and out sometimes and having to really fight and climb your way back out of it um, on a constant basis, it really teaches grit, I think, um, 
so that's pretty cool again that you didn't tell me that in the pre pre-screen calls so um now we're we're ready to bet a little bit harder on hoppy planet as a result of i appreciate that man yeah you know it's it's pretty much the only sport where you know you step out there on your own and it is you know just you versus another person and it, and you are quite literally kind of manhandling each other um you know you learn a lot about yourself and and your mental capacity and ability to when you both win and when you win and when you lose um it's it's very personal so uh yeah it's a, it's a great sport yeah no that's pretty cool so um frito lay slinging some um, potato chips i just had some chips for lunch um they weren't the healthy kind i'm sorry but they tasted <laughs> really good um and then you you went out to um spend some time with google and whatnot at what point in time did you know you wanted to start a business so just a business in general, I think has kind of been a passion for me, you know, gosh, you can go all the way back into high school. My best friend and I would, uh, whenever it would snow in, in New York and we'd have late openings in school when we were 14 or 15, we'd go out, start knocking on the neighbor's doors and try to, you know, shovel their driveways. And then we got a snowblower so we could do more houses faster. And, you know, I think that was probably the start of entrepreneurship at, uh, you know, 14, 15 years old, uh, but ca I carried it on, you know, through college, I, I, you know, tried to start a textbook rental business in, you know, 2006, you know, right when that stuff was starting. And um, I probably could have been getting good business if I did it right. Um, you know, <laughs> um, so, so it's always been in my butt. I actually started a, a micro transport transit, you know, business up in Chicago that ended up getting a lot of fanfare. Um, what a shutdown during COVID. So it's a good thing that we actually, you know, pulled up before then. But I always knew, you know, I like to be innovative and and try to solve problems try to see things where where people kind of just look past or or see something that someone sees as a problem and see if it's really actually a solution in a different way and um yeah that always that's always been in there i, I think at a certain point in my career i realized that um you can have that passion but you probably also have to have some background and knowledge and my background and knowledge happened to be in 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 food and uh and uh, and nutrition and so that's where we went so how do you stumble i mean how do you stumble across uh grasshoppers and cookies yeah, so it's cricket actually. Chet is cricket, uh, and so that's all right. So uh, Chet is actually a scientific name of cricket. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really good uh, question. If you actually start to look at, you know, food and food makeup and ingredients in, in the form of what is the function of an ingredient? What does this do? Um, is it just structurally part of the food? Does it do something else for you? What have you? Um, uh, you start to actually narrow a lot of things down really fast. So if you say, I want something that is going to help me give better nutritional balance in food, uh, you swipe out a lot of stuff. Then if you say, I also want it to be um, sustainable and actually improve the food supply as opposed to degrade the food supply for the world, um, you swipe out most of what's left. And then um, and then you say, well, I need something that can be, can be flexible and used in a number of different ways, um, has you know any other alternative benefits to it. And um, and can actually eventually be done at a very very cost effective scale. Um, you you have almost no ingredients left, but uh, a cheddar cricket protein is one of them. And so um, that's where we landed. And what we kind of realized was, you know, most of the world already views that as an everyday normal part of food and and a food source. Um, something like two billion people around the world eat it as part of their daily diet. It's more of a Western culture. Um, almost marketing uh, stance than it is anything else of why we don't eat it here. And we said, well, gosh, that seems very interesting that a third of the world eats this already. Uh, it's this kind of true definition of a superfood. 
but we're not eating it here. And I can use it to kind of flip the snack food world that I used to live in. This seems like a pretty good place to start. How do, uh, define superfood. You know, that's a great question. Uh, yeah. So I think a superfood is as something that ticks off on, on multiple points. For us, that means you're getting uh, a, a very high protein uh, nutrition food that is, is not hugely processed. It's naturally occurring. It's a prebiotic. It's high in B12. It's got iron and calcium. You're, you're checking off all of these different nutritional needs in a single ingredient. It's also has an almost negative uh, net environmental impact, meaning that you can actually uh, raise the protein off of food waste, turn it into new, viable, very valuable protein, and then the uh, other byproducts products of it are actually all environmentally friendly outputs. Uh, that makes it part of a superfood, and then you know just the availability of it, something that you can actually do anywhere in the world, um, makes it kind of a, a pretty super special thing. So are you sitting around on like a Friday night with a glass of bourbon or wine in hand and Google superfood protein or how in the world do we stumble across crickets, man? You know, so yeah, so start doing research. Honestly, it, it did start with just like, just do my Google search history is probably pretty weird at that point <laughs> um, for sure. But, um, you know, actually, you know, when I, when I said, when you start putting in those qualifiers, you narrow stuff down really fast. And there was actually a report by the, the UN and the, the Food and Agriculture Organization arm of the, of the UN back in like 2013, 2014, that uh, actually called out insect protein, particularly crickets, as something that is likely a necessary piece of the future food supply in order for us to support a world population of 10 billion people and realistically even our population today. And there's actually a lot of scientific research that points to all that being an inevitable an inevitability. And so um, that became really intriguing. And then once you dig a little deeper, you start to find out that there's actually been a lot of other, you know, stories or press or coverage on it. They just don't get a lot of, a lot of love and, uh, and all that kind of snowballs together. So, so you're in Chicago, you stumble across the UN paper, um, with Google and a glass of bourbon. Um, and you, you know, kind of, Hey, this seems like a neat idea, protein, snack food, healthy, sustainable. Um, and then boom, you've got a business. So that's naturally not the way it happened, but like, how did you, how did you go formation, right? Talk a little bit about, uh, cause I mean, you're working with, um, you know, one of the top names in the world, right? Mm-hmm. With Google. Um, and you're in a fun city, although it's a little bit cold. Um, so how do you, uh, walk us through formation of the business and how you start um, taking it from zero to, to the next step. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it was kind of putting the building blocks in place one at a time. So first it was like, okay, do we think this idea is, is novel, interesting. And if we did something different, it, you know, could this be, could we achieve our goals with it? You know, the answer was yes. And then we said, all right, well, how would we actually go about doing that? How would we, if this is, if we, if we brand it right, so we set a really high bar for quality and taste and all that, you know, what, what would we do? And I said, well, if I had to introduce a new food uh, to, to people that they've either never, never heard of or could have had an aversion to in a different way, like, what should we do? And we said, put it in a freaking chocolate chip cookie because you can get everybody in the world to eat one. And uh, I, I kid you not, that was a conversation Allie and I had in, in, our, in our kitchen. Allie's my wife and the co-founder. And we said, all right, so 
they just literally just started baking away, man, in our, in our home kitchen. I think it took, um, you know, I think it took like 45 or 55 versions to get to the actual first version that we were willing to go sell to people that had the right taste and texture, had to do a lot of Googling to learn a lot of food science to figure out how to make it shelf stable. And, um, you know, and we, and we went out and said, all right, well, let's see if people are actually open to eating this. Would this be interesting for folks? And so, yeah, obviously we, you know, we actually had our engagement party and we brought some and made our friends eat it to see what they would say and our family to do it. And, and, you know, when we first started the business, I said, well, if, uh, if I can get like one in 10 people to say that they are willing to try this and, and then one and 10 of those people say, wow, this is really good. I'm actually willing to buy it. And I was like, you know what? 1% like major companies sometimes will launch a product at, you know, 1% like that's, that's a, that's an okay starting place. And, uh, and we got more than, I mean, they were obviously friends and family, but far more than one in 10 actually were willing to try it. Right. So it's like, okay, so that's interesting. Like maybe people aren't as afraid as, as we thought they would be if we present it right. And so then we started figuring out more of the logistics. How would we make more of this? Where could we sell it? And I have to, you know, a little bit of uh, credit here. When I was at, at Google, we had a big event. So with kind of our whole organization, probably about 80, 80 to hundred people or so. And we were at this offsite and everybody, um, they were trying to solicit people to do something called a lightning talk. I was like, get up there for five minutes in front of the whole group and just, uh, talk about something you're passionate about. And I was like, well, you know, I could do it. Maybe I won't. Allie's like, are you freaking kidding me? You, you better volunteer and put yourself on stage. To do this. <laughs> so I said, all right, fine. So I went up there and I had five minutes, um, and it's supposed to be, I think it's like three minutes and then two minutes of Q and A or something like that. And just said, Hey, this is a project that I'm working on. And, you know, we make these and, and we you know, think this could be a really interesting thing that the world could use. Uh, and everybody's kind of like jaws drop a little bit. And, and so again, there's probably a hundred people in the room. And I said, so, I mean, I, I'm just kind of curious if anybody's willing, is, is there anybody who's willing to try this? Cause if they are, we'll, we'll, I'll, we'll send you some. And I think like 85 people raised their hand out of the hundred. And we were like, holy shit, <laughs> like that, okay, didn't see that coming. Um, and, you know, these are probably people who'd be in our target audience. We're like, wow, all right, so there's a lot more people who could be open to this than we thought. And so that's when we actually went back, you know, we formed the LLC and and started figuring out, okay, you know, we can't just make these in our apartment anymore. So we joined a, a food incubator and a shared kitchen space in the west side of Chicago and, um, you know, sent out those cookies, got good feedback, made some updates and edits, started going out. You know, just to literally me walking into stores and in around Chicago saying, hey, we got this product and, you know, would you be willing to sell it? Give it a try. And, you know, local, you know, just local mom and pop shops that gave us a shot. And first we had five and then 10 and 15. And so this is I'm, I'm going out at like 5 a.m. before work every day to go deliver cookies to these stores. And I work from, you know, nine to five, five thirty. And I go back out at six or seven o'clock at night, do more. And, um, you know, that kind of started the wheels rolling. And then we would start making more in the shared kitchen and it was me and Allie. And then we had to get my mother-in-law down to start helping us out. Then we had to get some part-time people to start helping us out. And then, you know, before we know it, we're spending 20 hours a weekend, you know, in the kitchens and, and selling to 40 or 50 stores, started shipping them uh, out to a friend uh, and who ended up becoming a partner out in Colorado to do some there as well. And, um, and kind of when we started getting off to the races from there, I, I don't want to drain you with too many of the details, but that's kind of how we got going. So go back with me for a second. We're um, we've got the idea, and we decide we're going to come up with a recipe of cookies in the um, in the kitchen. Um, I can't. Are you going out to the park and getting crickets and putting them in a blender? 
how, how are we getting the protein out of the crickets in the early that's, days, that's, right? That's a great question. That's a great question. So like I mentioned that in other parts of the world, insects and, and crickets are, are a normal part of diet. So there are actually other parts of the world where there are actually factories, you know, they farm raise crickets, just like you farm raise chickens. Um, and they have ones um, internationally. There are, there's like a cottage industry here in the States of folks that do it and just places you wouldn't expect. Iowa, Texas, you know, Nebraska. It's like, really? Um, but, uh, but they are, there's also one or two companies that are trying to like leapfrog the entire system that do state-of-the-art production. It's uh, almost like the most advanced vertical farming operation that you could ever kind of imagine, you know, robotics, AI enabled, all that kind of stuff. And it's focused on, on, on insect farming, which is pretty cool. And so when we started, you know, we found actually other companies that had, you know, some you know, trying to make chips or they were trying to do cookies or bars or whatever it was and reached out and we're like, Hey, could we, wherever you're getting it from, could we just buy it from you? And then, you know, we first was like, Hey, can I buy a pound? And then I was like, okay, can I buy 10? Can I buy 50? You know what I mean? And so, um, you know, going from there at a certain point, you know, we hit a threshold where we went directly to the manufacturer, ended up going to the, the one who's making the state of facility. And, uh, and uh, while more expensive, the quality was like superbly high. And, and we said, Hey, let's maybe we're going to just buy it specifically from you. Maybe we can, you know, start a partnership here. And, uh, and then we kind of have always had a, a clean supply there, but, uh, most people would never know it or ever think of it, but there is a very rapidly growing industry, uh, on the, um, uh, particularly on the cricket protein, on the insect protein side for use in, in, you know, food that people eat, that, that pets eat, that, uh, cattle and aquaculture, um, uh, food uses are kind of springing up all over the place. That's disappointing. I was really hoping there's a blender in the story. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I wouldn't put it past me by any means. Um, I, you know, I, I think I was like, I was trying to do as few steps as possible. I was like, fuck, I got to figure out how to make this taste good. I leave somebody else to making the powder itself. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So, um, so you're, um, you're at Google, you have engagement party, your mother-in-law is helping you out. Um, you're growing the business you're in Chicago. Um, and then because it makes a ton of sense to not only start a new business, but to change cities at the same time, um, you pick up and move to Charlotte to carry on the operations, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how, um, how much of a difficult transition was it to come from Chicago with a really an infant business concept and idea and, and pick up and, and start running all over again. Uh, so it certainly didn't help. Um, you know, we also, you know, I kept it in mind. I always had this kind of concept of saying like, listen, uh, we're building this business piece by piece uh, to exist and run. And if, if the business could only ever exist where I am or where Ali was like, we're not going to get very far. So we needed to be putting all the pieces in place to, be able to scale irrespective of, of us from a, from a physical standpoint. And we were getting pretty close to that. I think the move accelerated that um, to both positive and, and negative ends, I think. Um, we got up and said, listen, we, we know what we're doing with the operations. At this point, we were handing off our production to and our, and our fulfillment and our logistics. And it actually forced us to put all of the things in place in the business that we would need as a stronger operating company. Uh, sooner than we would have expected, it meant we maybe probably took on maybe a little more cost in some areas than we might've had before, but it also meant that we were then turning our time to focus on other things sooner. 
Um, so the net effect on the business was actually probably a positive. Um, it did make it, you know, a little bit harder to be running a local Chicago brand when I myself didn't live in, in Chicago because I couldn't be where I needed to be, but that was a bit of a forcing mechanism. I think, um, you know, coming to Charlotte as a new entrepreneur that didn't know anybody here, um, you know, definitely could be a challenge. I literally just went on to LinkedIn and started looking for companies. At the time, I was still working at Google, by the way. So like this was like a twofold thing where I said, you know, um, if Google ever forces us back to to the office in Chicago, like we live down here now, so I'm not going to be able to go. And if Hobby Planet isn't isn't ready, then like I'm going to need a new job. But also I would like to get Hobby Planet ready so that it doesn't even ever come to come fruition. So so I, I kind of set out on this twofold path where I said, well, I should probably try to meet some folks that it might be good to see about getting the job if I, you know, in the back pocket. And then also there's got to be an entrepreneurial community here. I know that there's the tons of finance and, you know, fintech, but, you know, there's, there's growing people interested in food and sustainability and all these other things. And I literally went on LinkedIn and started sending messages to a couple people. Um, I, you know, I found one, uh, one of the guys is actually a really great friend of mine. Now we see each other probably every two or three months, um, has introduced me to other entrepreneurs and other folks. And, and it's really great because it, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you're typically pretty open to, uh, you know, meeting folks and also trying to help other people in similar situations. And so I would send a message, something along the effect of, hi, you know, my name is Matt. I'm a founder of a, a young, you know, food startup and uh, I'm new to the area. Don't really know anybody. Was wondering if I could buy you a cup of coffee here about what it's like to live in Charlotte or start a run or start a business in Charlotte. And, you know, I'd really appreciate it. Happy to come to you whenever you're available. And, you know, and people answer. And, and I think that's awesome. I think that's, you find that in the entrepreneurship community. And I think you find that, you know, in Charlotte, because it's a pretty, pretty good group of folks down here. And, um, and that was really great. That really actually helped us get settled personally and professionally. And you moved here in uh, fall of 2021? Uh, so- spring of 2021. So it was Mar- uh, moved down here kind of right at the end of March, beginning of April. Okay. So let's talk about the business since you've been down here, right? You were, um, you pick up, you move to Charlotte. Um, you, um, you're starting to reach out to folks. You're still with Google. Um, most still of your Google. stores are probably that you're selling to are probably back up in the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. So talk about the development of the business and how you really navigated founder issues while at the same time being at Google and how, how receptive, because at this point in time, you've stood up and you've made a speech in front of Google people. So Google knows that you've got a, a side hustle, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think twofold, I think, um, on the business and growth and selling side, you know, ironically in food, it was, you know, the pandemic was, was a double-edged sword it completely just jacked up supply chains. It made it, you know, there was a point where I, you know, we couldn't get flour. I had to go to Costco and you could only buy one 10 pound bag a day. So I'd have to go from Costco to Costco to buy flour, right? Like not, not great. Um, on the other hand, um, it also left some retailers a little bit more open to talking to new brands who could get them products when other people couldn't. Um, and, you know, the food industry tends to have a lot of fairly antiquated processes. And, you know, it used to be the case that if you wanted to go have a meeting with a buyer, you had to get there, you had to schedule a meeting and get there in person, which means if I wanted to talk to someone in Chicago or California or whatever, I had to drive or get in a car or, you know, or or fly rather or whatever. Um, Now it was all done virtually, which meant 
there was no difference for me to be in Charlotte or in Chicago when I would talk to the buyer of a grocery store. Because like I said, the whole point is it shouldn't matter where I am for, for the background of the business. And so our products were still made in Chicago. They were distributed in Chicago. It was founded there. So when I talked to somebody in Chicago virtually, it was, you know, we're still a local brand. I just physically wasn't there myself. Um, and, and so that's kind of how we went about it. And, and as we've grown, you know, we, we carry the same principle. Um, Google was interesting, you know, uh, selling cricket cookies is so outside of the realm of what Google does every day. They were all like, best wishes to you, man. (laughs) Um, Google has a, has a, has a lot of really great talent and smart people. And, and they, you know, they, they do support people going off to do their own thing. I'll tell you, I, before I started Hoppy Planet, I mentioned there was like a micro transit business that we had started. It was trying to, um, you know, kind of doing, doing transit to and from suburbs and city and whatnot. And actually in my time at Google, uh, I was doing that and we had gotten some notoriety by, you know, the Chicago Tribune and whatnot. And I did actually get called in, uh, to the, the office by the legal team at Google because they had a, um, ownership stake in Lyft. And they said, well, you're doing transit. We actually own part of the transit company. This might be a conflict of interest and yada, yada. So I say all that for anybody who's listening, um, do make sure whether or not you do or don't have a conflict of interest with an employer while you're doing, cause you're probably going to work there while you're starting your business. Uh, when it came to, to food they were like, have at it, man. You're Enjoy. all good. We don't, we don't have yeah. a cricket business. You're all right. All good. All good. Um, <laughs> you know, then for, you know, probably, you know, a year plus of my time, my entire focus was like, you know, I had a good amount of experience at Google and I was like, how do I do everything that I need to do in the most efficient and fastest possible way I humanly possibly can? Because then I have an entire another full-time job to do outside of that. Uh, uh, and you know, my, it was, uh, 2021 was a really tough life, uh, part of 2020 as well. You know, I was, I was probably, you know, I was, I was, working 90 hours a week and, uh, never took a day off. And, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, tiring and grueling, but you know, we, we had a goal in mind. So that's kind of just what life was. What? So we start off with cookies. We've got more than cookies now, right? So how long did you run just cookies and how did you, how did you start to identify what your next product was and how have you have you started to grow your are they SKUs? I guess that's probably what they are, right? How did you start to grow out your product portfolio? Yeah, so in two ways. Um, first was you know we had cookies. We un, kind of were getting we were getting good feedback and kind of understanding the market more. And and part of it is you know every day I always try to question myself is like are we doing the right thing? Should we be doing something different? You know, don't just because something worked yesterday doesn't mean it'll work tomorrow. And always like a kind of solid sense of paranoia, probably not healthy, but just kind of how, how I am. Uh, and so, you know, in the course of making cookies, we also look at the entire bait category and we came across this, you know, really interesting market gap, which was um, uh, where our, our mini muffin bites fall in. And I think everybody's probably familiar with like Entenmann's little bites. Uh, you know, if you have kids or you yourself, wherever a kid, you probably eat them. Um, it turns out that there is actually no better for you, sustainable or uh, you know, premium option of those whatsoever anywhere in, in the market. And, and in natural food stores, they're not even allowed to carry those brands because the ingredients they have. And we said, well, that's actually super interesting because the, we, we actually can check all those boxes. Um, and that's a very similar product to making cookies that you just formulate, get, you know, baked all in the same place and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I got to the point where I started talking to people about these and, you know, some, some folks who I knew still from the industry and then 
you know, one or two retailers I'd pitch it out to. And, it, and people were more excited about those than they were about our cookies. And I was like, okay, well, then maybe that actually means, you know, we're on to something. <laughs> Probably should have started here. Uh, but, um, you know, and that led us to starting to, to develop and then launch our, our mini muffin bites line, which we launched um, a little bit earlier this year. They're actually rolling out into our first, uh, you know, brick and mortar retailers here in, in the next couple of weeks, which is exciting. And, um, and so that was the Hoppy Planet side. Uh, in the summer or spring summer of last year, uh, I mentioned we had this high quality protein supplier. Well, they actually also owned a protein bar brand uh, that had been kicking around for a number of years and had gotten some notoriety at one point and, and they, they acquired the brand. But um, they were much more focused on growing and scaling as an ingredient supplier than, than, a, than a CPG company, which is honestly actually what's more beneficial to all of us. And, and we said, hey, well, you know, guys, we've already got this great relationship about you supplying us with, with protein. And, um, you know, you've got this brand that we think actually can have a lot of affinity with what we do. And uh, we could probably have some flywheels with each other. So why don't we both just do what we're, we're both really designed and good at doing is you guys get better at making powder faster and cheaper and, and in higher volume. And we will build brands using it. And so, uh, you know, through a summer negotiation, we ended up taking over. Uh, acquiring that brand from them. And so all of a sudden, you know, in like a, it was like a four month or five month time frame. We went from two cookies, uh, two different types of cookies to having two cookies, three mini bites, three protein bars, uh, protein powder. So, so we went from like two SKUs to 11 in like four months. Um, uh, and so there was some, some work to be done. Uh, it certainly kept us busy in, in the fall of 2021 and, and some rebranding and, and, um, and kind of optimi- you know, efficiency optimization, changing partners and all that. But um, you know, the net effect of it is it landed us in, uh, in early 2022 with kind of this great stable of brands that were both e-commerce and in, and in brick and mortar retail and um, you know, back to building again, which was great. That's awesome. So um, products are still made in Chicago. Where are the products made? Combination of places. Uh, so we got some that are made right here in Charlotte. Uh, so, uh, so co-manufacturer here in Charlotte, we've got one, um, that is, uh, for cookies in Chicago and we're actually going to split some of the Charlotte off. It looks like to, uh, someone in California who specializes in, in what, in, in some bars. So, um, positive and negative, uh, in the, in the food world is they have, you know, you've got all kinds of called co-manufacturers who can make your stuff for you if they, if they make similar products and, and, you know, you qualify with all your ingredients and whatnot. Um, and so it's kind of turnkey, turnkey scale. So as we've grown, you know, we start to find people who are bigger or more efficient or specialized in what they do. And it kind of unlocks more parts of the business for us. What's that? Um, how's that learning process been for you? Right. I mean, uh, may have shoot at first we're um i'm still gonna say we're grinding crickets just because it's more fun than anything else um <laughs> in your own kitchen and then you know then you're using a facility in chicago and now all of a sudden we're we're scaling up and completely outsourcing that right how have you kind of just walked through that process yeah it is a lot rougher than i would have originally anticipated um you know and this might be a food specific problem or, or maybe not but like you know when you design a recipe that works in your home kitchen or your home oven that's fantastic uh, but it turns out when you scale that up to making you know when you go from making one pound at a time to 50 pounds at a time um, it doesn't come out the same and uh, the the ingredients or the dough might work different or rounding errors become a lot more important um, your home oven is different from a you know convection oven that's three times the size and so um, 
back to the drawing board, almost starting over again. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, we thought we had something here and now we're ready to start selling more. And I think the first time Allie and I went to this shared kitchen space, we're like, this is going to be great. We're going to make like 800 cookies in our first shot here. It's going to take like two hours. It's going to be so awesome. Cause you do the math. You're like, here's how many can fit in the oven at a time. Here's the mixer. Blah, blah, blah. I think we were there for eight and a half hours and we got zero cookies oh, and wow. we were like, shit <laughs> this did not go well <laughs> uh, and, and y'all stayed anyways, together that this stayed together and remember yeah. now so now you're paying for the time you know to rent the space and all that and um and so uh yeah i, I gotta give her a lot of credit for, for sticking with me through some really tough days uh, in the kitchen as we figure that stuff out um and then and then yeah and and you gotta kind of reformulate and rebuild and then oh by the way um we used to buy ingredients at the supermarket and now instead of buying in the supermarket, we found a food distributor instead of buying, you know, 50 pounds of, you know, or, you know, flour, five pounds at a time, in the supermarket, we're going to buy a bag of 50 pounds from the distributor, but it's a different flour. So now I have to, t- we have to test again and tweak again. And so, and you do that over and over and over. And, and that um, was definitely something I didn't realize when we first started, it makes it hard. And then guess what, when you go from making it yourself in a, a, a shared kitchen to a co-manufacturer's facility, you got to do it all over again because they have different equipment. They have bigger, different ovens. They have, you know, you might have something that works really great on the equipment that you have today, but if they use a different piece of equipment and your stuff doesn't run through properly, you actually have to change your product to run through their machines, but still come out with the same result. And so, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned it took us, you know, maybe 40 iterations to get our first recipe. We're probably on iteration like 90, uh, at this point. Um, but it, it, you know, gets us where we need to be. Man, that's crazy. So, I mean, you go to a um, co-manufacturing facility and it tastes different. Um, you got to, I mean, you got to start from scratch all over again. And and how many did you just run in that? I mean, um, that's right. I mean, what did you yeah, do? <laughs> <laughs> you are right on. Um, and we learned some of that the real hard way, right? Like, you know, like, oh that, my gosh, that, this is very similar equipment. That's or, cost too, right? I mean, that's that's money that you're burning in the process. So so I'll tell you, there's there's costs in two ways. One is like there's a financial cost because you have to rent the time in a co-manufacturer and then all the ingredients and, and whatnot that you have to buy and support. But like, but then like we're a sustainable food company, which means if we mess up and we throw out food, like that hurts, man. That like fundamentally hurts. So when we go and we're like, oh no, we used to make, you know, a hundred pounds of cookies at a time, which would be like 1500, 1600 cookies, right? At a time we go to a co-manufacturer and they're like, okay, well, we'll do this first run for you and we'll do a small run and it'll be 400, 500 pounds. We're like, okay, well, that's a fairly larger commitment than we, than we used to make. And it goes wrong. It's like, that is, a, I, I mean, I would literally had to drag the garbage bags of, of bad cookies to their dumpster. I'm like, well, this, this is not going great. Um, and you just, uh, you, but then you say, okay, like what went wrong? Let me go reformulate again and let me go again and go again. And, and remember at this point, like you only have so much supply still on hand. So the clock is ticking and you kind of like rapid fire R and D as fast as you can to get to the Are right they button. helping you out with that at all, Matt, um, with the formulation um, or is it, was it really mostly on alley and you, but you the R and D department. They, yeah, no, they, they don't because then they don't want to have the liability of saying like, you know, if they chipped in and then they said, we think this will work and then it didn't work. I'd say, well, I thought you got, you guys are professionals and you said it works. So they, they, they say, well, just come back to us and tell us when you're ready and we'll try again 
could pay for it again. Um, luckily at that point, you know, I'm 18, 19 months into doing food R and D. So I've got a, and I talked to some food scientists and whatever, and, and, um, you know, have a pretty good understanding of like, okay, well this went wrong. Cause I probably need to shift this to this and that's, and then obviously like, what's the cost implication of doing these? Does this still work? And, um, you know, we move, had to move real fast, uh, which, which is tough when I took the day off from Google to go do this test run and it went completely wrong. And I got a, you know, I've got a meeting at 9am the next morning and I'm like, well, well shit, I, I don't, I'm going to run out of cookies in four days. Like, but I got to take Google meetings today. Um, yeah, pressure kind of piles on pretty quick. So at some point in time throughout all of this, you realize that business needs money to go and you've been funding it yourself. And, um, so you, you, you raised some capital here recently. How did you come to the conclusion? When did you know it was the right time? How did you, um, how'd you come to the conclusion? Again, you're still brand new to a city, right? I mean, you're here for a year and a half. Um, so walk through the fundraising process, if you don't mind for a minute. Yeah. So, and so we actually, we, we raised money twice for the business. So the first time, so I, you know, I'll, and I'll, I'll share this because I know people always ask and they're always kind of curious, like, what's it take to get, you know, get to you know, a velocity where you can go raise money from people. There are some people who raise money from, from day one. Uh, there's, there's others that, that don't, um, you know, I think in my experience, we find that people are tend to be willing to give you money after they've seen you put in some of your own uh, to prove that things are going to work. And so by the time we got to the summer of last year, I had, uh, I had put about $75,000 into the business at that point. And um, you're just you cash know, flowing that, Matt. So you're exactly downing right. savings and then you're adding monthly savings into it, right? Exactly. That's like, hey, this is, you know, this is, this is my bonus. This is part of my paycheck. This is just kind of feeding right into it. And, um, uh, you know, that's where we made our mistakes. And, you know, we messed up on packaging and it cost me $1,000. I'm like, well guess we're not going on vacation this month kind of thing, you know, it's like, um, and so, so we, we cranked through all those by the time we got to like the summer of last year is when we launched our first major retail and first super major supermarket in the Midwest with, you know, 30, 40 stores or whatever it was that we started. And, um, and, uh, I said, okay, we're in a major retailer. Uh, people are clearly buying our products. You know, we got repeat purchase note the stores that we started with a year prior still, you know, we're still carrying us and keeping us. And we said, okay, things, things seem to be going well. But, you know, this business is not going to continue to move forward unless I, I can't keep doing this part time. I can't just answer emails at seven o'clock at night and expect that, you know, people are going to, you know, take us seriously. And so I said, well, um, you know, I, you know, Allie and I talked and, and I said, Dad, this is kind of a, a dream for me that I want to go chase. And so, um, you know, I'd be willing to leave Google, but I couldn't support the business and leave Google at the same time. So we said at that point we were OK to go do a friends and family fundraising round. And that was when, you know, the, the nice part, maybe nicer or not, is, you know, having having run the business for a year and a half, we were very open with people about where we were, the trials and tribulations, what was going right, what was going wrong, which I, I know a lot of people tend to be sometimes a little bit more shy about sharing some of that information. And I would say like twofold. One is if you think people are going to steal your idea, whether you tell folks about it or not, someone's probably going to try to do what you're doing. Like, uh, you're probably not the only one in the world that's ever thought of it, unfortunately, in most cases. Um, and then the other is the more open you are, the more people kind of ride that journey with you. So when it came time to say, we're going to go raise $150,000 of friends and family money because that's what we need to start scaling up supply and production and get our costs down and do all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I called up my first friends and some coworkers 
And I almost didn't even have to tell them anything. Like they knew about the whole business. So then it was like, Hey, here's what, here's why we're doing this now and what, what it's going to go mean. And in the kind of fall, uh, fall into early winter of, of 2021, we raised some friends and family fundraising and, and true to that word, I said, okay, well come January 1st, I'm going to quit Google and, and that'll be that. And, uh, and step in full time. And, uh, we continued on that path and we actually started having success a little bit faster than expected. And especially getting to be on the business full time, we started really moving and, um, you know, we got to March, uh, of, of, uh, of this year, uh, you know, just kind of four or five months after the friends and family round and said, like, we're actually going to run out of money faster than expected because we're having more success and we're still, you know, running up our, our cost curves and whatnot. And, uh, and I'd hate for this business to go under because we were too successful. Right. So, um, why don't we go out and, and do our next round of fundraising, which was our seed round. And, um, that's where we started extending to, um, you know, friends of friends of friends or, or people who invested to introduce us to other folks. Um, that's how we got introduced to the Charlotte angel fund was, so uh, in in a, in in a true sense of like how does how does the network help and and grow and and being kind of you know open to to meet new folks, I, I mentioned when we first moved down here, I went on LinkedIn and I started sending messages to people and other founders and entrepreneurs and and connecting them. Uh, one of them, who's the guy who became a great friend of mine, um, is the one who actually introduced me to the Charlotte Angel Fund, uh, who then ended up leading our seed funding round. And so you just you never know where things go when you just kind of put yourself out there to go meet folks and genuinely make connections with people. And, um, and so we got into the summer of, of 2022 to do our, our fundraising round. And, um, we actually, uh, I guess oversubscribe would be the term maybe or whatever. We, we raised more than we had originally planned, um, which was awesome. And we actually then decided to extend the fundraising to say, we now have enough money to cover, you know, our, our operating runway and we can start to breathe and do the things that we know the business needs. Uh, but if we raise more money, then we can actually do it faster. And so that's what we're in the process of doing right now. So would you, um, so it's crazy. I always say this. Um, we got less than 10 minutes to go in the podcast, right? It's amazing how fast an hour can go when we're having fun talking about, yeah. um, uh, talking about crickets and businesses. Um, but what'd you learn in the fundraising process, right? I mean, it's first time going through it. Uh, difficult, easy, how'd you attack it? Um, right. What was, uh, what's the process there for you? Yeah. Uh, so I'll give you this from two perspectives. First of all, um, the fundraising process is rough. Um, it, it takes a lot of time. The irony is the people that you're pitching to, um, recognize that it takes you a lot of time and the more time you spend fundraising, the less time you have growing the business. So you're trying to pitch them to invest in a business that you're spending time, not growing the business. Um, it is interesting how the conversations evolve over time. Uh, when it was friends and family, it was people who were really excited and you maybe don't know the industry very much, but kind of know you when they're kind of investing in you. As you graduate further into the fundraising space, you're relying on other people who don't know you or your business, uh, that you have to convince to believe in you. Um, and that you're not crazy and you're doing something that is going to be meaningful to you and to them because they, you know, they're investing for a reason. And, um, you know, I've done sales my whole career. So if someone says no, right, you just keep rolling on to the next one, but understand why they say no. And, uh, you know, we had some, some folks pass. We had uh, most people came back and said, well, 
we think what you're doing is interesting, but we don't invest until you're at X or Y. So put us on your newsletter and come back when you're doing a million or 2 million a year in sales or whatever. This and that. So, so those are great, you know, build, put that into the bank. Um, but man, it, it is a grind. You know, I, I, you know, we probably, we actually had a pretty, I would say we actually had a pretty high hit rate. We probably landed investment from something like 75% of people that we spoke to, but um, some of those had seven conversations before we got to the, the investment. Um, it's, it's just grueling. Um, and it's tiring uh, and you just have to continue to believe that when you're being honest and truthful and that you're continuing to, to move forward on that process. I would tell you there is an alternative second set of pressures that exist when you're doing that after you quit a high paying job and you now have to pay your mortgage out of your savings and you know your family is, is trying to live off nothing. Um, because then the success of the business is like the success of, of your life in, in a lot of ways. Um, and that is actually really hard and uh, very stressful. You know, I, I don't think a day has gone by where I don't wake up and think like, shit, we've got to pay the mortgage this month. And how much of my, you know, for, you know, retirement do we have to sell this month? And um, this really sucks. And, you know, it's a lot of pressure on, on my wife to feel as well. And so um, that, while not raising money for me, it's raising money for the business actually sits in the back of your head as well to say like, I better make sure that we do this and do this well and use this money that we're raising well, because like we have mortgaged our, our lives on it. Um, and so it's an interesting process. So you've, um, you've mentioned your wife a number of times, right? So co-founder, we've had a couple of co-founder spouses on the podcast in the past, Like, how do y'all handle that? Right. How, do, how, um, being in business with somebody is difficult anyways, being in a marriage with somebody, at least my wife tells me it's difficult. I don't know if it's difficult for everybody else or not, but how do y'all, how do y'all navigate both worlds? Yeah, it is alternatingly awesome and extremely challenging. Um, so we have complementary skills, which makes it really great. You know, all of our, everything you see designed in our packaging and our website and, and, our, and our communications, all that is all her, which is awesome because I am, you know, asked me to draw something and it won't come out great. Um, you know, I, the sales and more of the finance and, and business side. Um, and, and so that's awesome. At the same time, this was, this is, this was my dream uh, and not hers. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, as much as she supports me and she's, and she works on the business, she still also has a job outside of it. And so, you know, I have to be respectful of that and, and understand the sacrifice that she makes for it. Um, and then, you know, gosh, you know, when a time comes, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily like a disagreement. I don't think we've ever gotten to a point where like, I think we should do this. And the other one said, no, we should do that. And it became, came a really big head. We actually like talked through stuff pretty nicely. Um, but you know, when this is the, number one priority of everything that I do is running this business. And if that's not the same for her on some days, it, it can be challenging. It's like, well, gosh, I, you know, this, that puts stress on our marriage. And if I need to do this and she wants to do that, um, it's, it, it could be tough. And so, um, you know, we continue to, to kind of dance our way through that over time. You know, we, when we started the business, we were dating, then we were engaged and then, you know, we're married and we went through a pandemic together and moved states together and did all that. So we, we've certainly been through a lot and I don't, I don't think the business is going to be the thing that's going to, going to break the marriage or doing pretty well. Um, but it, it's certainly something that we, you know, we had to set boundaries about, you know, we don't talk about work over dinner. 
uh, or after a certain time at night, or, um, you know, we, we try to keep our parts of our lives separate so that this, that we, you know, we still have a, a husband and wife relationship outside of a work relationship. Yeah. So spend the last couple of minutes talking about the goals and, um, vision for the next 12 to 18 months, right? Like how does Matt grow this business? You've, you've, you've raised some capital. You've got some money sitting in the bank. You, you now got the opportunity to go out and knock down some additional doors, so to speak. Um, what does that look like over the course of the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's multiple things. So, um, in, since we were able to raise money, you know, in the last two months, um, we've hired six part-time folks to come on. Um, you know, each does, you know, a specialized thing that's a few hours a week, but it unlocks more scale for the business, whether it be in taking things off my plate to go work on more selling and higher value tests or social media, which we weren't doing much of that we really need to go do or generating partnerships. So we'll see a really big acceleration, particularly in areas of stuff that we just weren't doing before, which is exciting. Uh, we'll continue to expand uh, our retail footprint. We're launching a new retailer in January, which will be really awesome in the Midwest called Fresh Time. And, uh, and then increasing the sales velocity in the places that we are. So we'll see a real nice emphasis on driving our, our retail sales, uh, but we'll also see more partnerships come into play where we've got, you know, other brands and other influencers who care about sustainable living and sustainable approach in sustainable space um, and healthier space uh, go towards that. So a um, lot, lot to get done for us in the coming months. It, uh, it's good to have more folks. We'll probably end up adding another one or two part-time folks to the team as we go. Uh, we're going to need to raise money again. Um, not because we're burning cash anymore. We actually have flipped our, our margin script where we actually can cover making our products and getting it to where it needs to go. But all of our business growth activities are, is what burns money. And so we'll need to go raise money to do more of that quicker and faster. Um, food is an interesting one. There's, there's like an escape velocity that you got it. Cause it, there's a lot, there's so much of it hangs on scale. And so if you don't get there, you end up being a flash in the pan. But if you do get there and you do turn a couple of those cost curves and a couple of those efficiencies, um, like you're kind of off to the races. And so next year is when we would be aiming to get around that curve and then be off to the races. And so the next 12 to 18 months, you know, we, we, we want to quadruple the business next year, you know, to put that in perspective for you. That's kind of how the speed that we're trying to run. Dude, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad you found Charlotte. Um, I'm glad Charlotte's embraced you with open arms. And um, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's an awesome business. I think it's a really um, novel concept and, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So obviously wish you a ton of success and, and hitting your goals next year. And, um, and knocking down the challenges that come along with that one as, as well, right? Appreciate it, man. Very much so. Yeah, it's it's been awesome to be here. It's, it's been awesome to get to chat with you. I appreciate you, you having me on. And, you know, we look forward to, to building a business here in Charlotte. Yeah, no. Well, thanks again for spending some time with us today, Matt. Super awesome to get to know you a little bit more and uh, really pumped to, to have you here in Charlotte and growing this business here. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks.
investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and the opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.